Welcome to Season 3 of Do Better Research, a learning-focused podcast about research methods. My name is Dr Suzanne Albury, and I'll be guiding you through research methods to become a better researcher, both for academic study and professional practice. This season, we will be looking in depth at some new research paradigms, as well as delving deeper into some previous topics. In this new episode, I'm in conversation with Dr Sebastian Cordoba, who is a lecturer in psychology for the School of Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Suffolk. Sebastian is a social and LGBTQ psychologist and is currently preparing his manuscript for his forthcoming book, Non-Binary Gender Identities, The Language of Becoming, which will be published by Routledge. In this episode, we talk about queer research paradigms, considering a broad definition and how it offers us a lens through which to view the world. Sebastian, welcome to the Do Better Research podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I'm going to ask you something that I ask all of my guests, um, knowing that you are a very active researcher um, and that you do some really interesting research. But what is it that you enjoy about doing research? Um, Thank you. Yeah, thank you again for having me. I I would say or I wanted to say a kind of cliche answer that I enjoy the process but as it turns out uh, this week I'm not enjoying the process <laughs> as much uh, because you know as it happens with research uh, things don't always go your way which is um, it, it is part of the process but sometimes you know the rejections and the um, the you know last minute changes that you have to do are not always um, best for, I guess, your, your, your well-being in some ways. But I will say that <laughs> I do enjoy um, the sharing aspect of research. Um, you know, after you have the final product in some ways, um, the sharing and the, you know, getting people to um, to hear what you've been working so hard for so many months and and to see people who might have similar questions or are really interested in what you have to say um, because they have been asking the same questions themselves. Um, you know, particularly with students who are quite um, uh, interested in, in, in the subject matter, you know, things like gender and sexuality. Um, when I've been able to share my research outputs with with my students, it, it just brings a lot of joy, and, and I think that that makes it all worth it, um, despite all the obstacles that might come in your way, such as the rejections and the <laughs> please change everything last minute type of things. Thanks, Sebastian. That's a really that's a really different answer than we've had before on on the show, and actually, I think that's a really good point. Is that the, the sharing is is one of the big reasons why we we do research isn't it you know not only to to have an impact on in on people's lives but also to spark inspiration interest excitement into those answering those questions yeah and i think for me you know i've been i've been teaching for well in in higher education for uh, roughly, I want to say six years or seven years now. And before that, I was teaching uh, elementary school and, and, and middle school and um, 
in in other countries uh, teaching English as a second language and it, you know the, there's a little bit of seeing that spark and and in a child <laughs> before you know when when things sort of click and um, you know seeing that in the higher education field when when students are kind of um, they're clicking what, what you're saying because they have the same questions and uh, it, it sparks something in them, whether it's, you know, I, oh, I want to go into this field or I want to do my dissertation with you on this topic uh, because you have inspired me. That, you know, that makes it all worth it for me. That's awesome. And I think what you say there about the, the bit of not enjoying the process and the process not being as linear sometimes as we would like, I think that's a really important point as well, just just for anyone listening, that a research project is not a straight line. And we've said this before on, on the podcast, but that there are those kind of rejections from things like funding, but also you might not get a rejection, but it might not be as positive an outcome as you were looking for or you're hoping for in the first instance. And it always feels a little disheartening and sometimes can feel overwhelming, the amount of extra work that needs to go in. Yeah. And I mean, to a certain extent, as, as I was saying earlier, it is sort of part of the process. And mm. from from those moments, you know, something does or tends to come out and it's it is part of the learning and the and the research process is you know um learning from those mistakes and getting feedback and um and and sometimes when things change it, you know it's it's sort of i don't want to say for a reason because <laughs> that's kind of deterministic uh, but it it does lead into interesting, you know, lines of of, of research and, and knowledge production. Mm. And so, what has been your favorite research project to work on, and why? I want to say so. While I was doing my PhD studies, I, I had the the opportunity to uh, be a research assistant. Um, alongside my PhD supervisor, um, Dr. Zoe Davy, um, And we were conducting some research looking at the um, experiences of parents with um, trans and gender diverse children uh, in terms of sort of the experiences negotiating uh, school environments and, and how they manage to to better support their their children so the topic in and of itself was you know very relevant to to my interest to my to my research interest but but also i learned a, a lot from from my supervisor in terms of uh, you know contacting uh, different organizations and uh, how to um, engage with participants in a in an ethical and humane and uh affirming way uh and you know the you know i think that project really taught me quite a lot about the research process and and we managed to also share some of the the findings at different conferences and uh it, it's something that i always kind of bring up as well when i'm teaching uh, around this subject, uh, some of the the findings from this study, 
and you know because i was part of most parts of of the from the inception of this study uh and the the um, literature review and the interviews in some ways and analyzing them uh you know i gain a lot from it and i still remember remember it kind of fondly that's awesome most people tend to say that, that their phd is their favorite research project but i love the fact that you it was during your PhD, but it was a kind of almost separate thing. And it was such a learning experience for you. Yeah, it was separate, but related in some ways. Um, my PhD, it's, it, you know, I think everyone has an interesting relationship with the PhD. <laughs> yes. Um, mine, I, I love and it's, it's, uh, I learned a lot from it, um, but I'm still not over it. <laughs> <laughs> The, the PhD is kind of a, um, I have an interesting relationship with it. I'm, I'm right, right now working on uh, turning, it, turning it into a, a monograph. So I'm still kind of in it. <laughs> so I don't feel like I've had resolution uh, in my relationship with my PhD. Uh, maybe once the book is published and I can see it in another kind of iteration of it, I can, I can say that it was my favorite pro- <laughs> project. <laughs> but for now, we we're still in talks and uh, <laughs> still, still in the uh, the uh, need for therapy stage. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Oh, um, I can't imagine. I mean, I know it's quite a. It's not common, but it's quite a, a, a important or, or you know big step to to turn the phd into a monograph um in a lot of in a lot of um disciplines i can't imagine having to do that <laughs> having to to stick with it again and and rewrite it for a different audience exactly yeah so it's it's been interesting just rereading it and reframing things and rephrasing things and um you know, putting it again, as you said, uh, to a different audience, and and that has been challenging. Um, I'm sort of right now in the, hopefully, the final stage of you know, um, taking all the feedback from the editors into consideration, and it, it's not bad feedback. It's just it's just a lot of feedback. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully, um, by the end of this year, there will be. Uh, a final product, as I said earlier, that can be shared and and will will continue uh, in a different you know in a different way, um, and hopefully will have a different type of impact than a, than a PhD did. Mm. And hopefully, a, a sort of a wider impact because there's I realize that PhDs tend to be um, kind of publicly available in repositories, but actually having the book searchable and available and and for use in teaching and things like that i think that's a really a great step yeah that will be the exciting part when you know i have a solid copy of it and and other people can share it and uh we can continue to engage with it in a in a different manner um so yes i'm i'm really excited about that it's i wouldn't say it's my favorite right now because i'm i'm in it in some ways still but yeah maybe you can ask me in a year or two (laughs) I will do, and I'll also um, make sure I ask when the book comes out, and and hopefully you won't grimace at the idea of it as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, that leads really nicely to thinking about the research that you've done and the projects, and um, as you're saying, sort of 
research around gender and sexuality and on trans and gender diversity. The thing I really wanted to talk to you today about was this idea of a, a, a queer research paradigm. And I think it's fair to say that that is a kind of an approach you take to your research. Uh, yes, yes, definitely. I, I draw upon kind of queer theory and queer um, approaches to research um, to, you know, to sort of understand the experiences of, uh, of non-binary people. So if this was being listened to by um, uh, an early career researcher or someone who has never heard of this kind of approach before, how would you define a kind of a queer theory or a queer approach to research? It's not particularly easy to explain, so I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> Uh, but queer theory, um, you know, has has sort of been in the academic uh, uh, discourse since maybe the '90s. Um, you know, there's a, a couple of, of of authors who have made it so that their their theories and their ways of understanding sex and gender and sexuality kind of um, culminate it into what we know now as queer theory. So I'm thinking of um, someone like Foucault, um, who, you know, kind of wrote extensively about the role of, of power and and the ways in which bodies and individuals get sort of regulated. And um, um, the word I'm looking for is subjectified through through social... Uh, interactions so that is kind of the you know one of the um, people who are quite um, notorious in, in in queer theory and then there's uh, Judith Butler um, who talked about the notions of um, you know non-essentializing individuals and uh, the idea that our identities are a product of of social interactions and what she coined, actually they coined, sorry, uh, I think um, Judith Butler uses they them pronouns now, um, uh, the notion of performativity, uh, this idea that it is through our bodies and through our speech acts and um, what they call performative uterances, I'm not saying that word correctly, I think, uh, to uh, utter, um, through those kind of um, performances uh, is how, you know, our social um, identities come to exist. So, you know, those are kind of the, the sort of pioneers in the, in the queer theory understanding. But what it really entails, so I've said a lot of big words, <laughs> is that um, there is no such thing as, uh, you know, normal per se, uh, and that the assumptions that we have about gender and sex and sexuality are, are part of the social uh, constructions that we have made uh, within society. So with that perspective, uh, in mind, so the queer approach uh, 
would seek to destabilize what we know as as normal in terms of gender, sexuality, and sex. So an example would be um, this idea of heteronormativity, which is again another big word. <laughs> uh, but that would be the assumption that everyone in society is heterosexual, uh, which as we know is not the case. Um, similarly, the idea of cis normativity. So this assumption that everyone is cisgender or that uh, the, the gender they were assigned at birth um, is the same one they identify as today. Um, so the idea with queer theory and, and uh, you know, understanding people's experiences through this lens is to um, make it so that their experiences are not uh, seen as deviant in some ways. Um, and that there is uh, more room for uh, diversity uh, within, I guess, embodied and uh, social um, expressions of, of identity. So I, I'm sorry, I think I'm, I'm saying a lot of words. <laughs> I hope some of them are making sense. No, they have, and it's been really interesting to hear you kind of explore that because it sounds as though there isn't a particular specific definition, but it's almost an approach to how you see the world and how you try to categorise and define the world. And there isn't a normal, there isn't a one thing that everyone um, should be measured by and against, but that there are lots of differences and and as you said lots of diversity and each area each group each concept needs to be approached very individually yes uh i think i think that's that's right in that you know queer experience or sorry queer theory is more of a lens uh, Mm. than a particular i mean that that's what i mean that the definition is is quite broad and is broad uh, sort of on purpose, <laughs> because queer theory is meant to destabilize uh, all of these systems that may or may not have uh, an impact uh, on on individuals, um, a negative impact such as oppression. Um, but it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned the, the idea of of this kind of categories. Uh, because, you know, the framework of queer theory is also one that has a, a view of resistance against uh, uh, identity <laughs> in some ways, because according to the, you know, some of, some of the theories, uh, it is through identity that people might get sort of... Mm, I guess the word I'm looking for is um, constrained uh, by by the limits of of such identities. Mm. So, um, you know, if we think about what a gay man looks like or sounds like, we might have a stereotypical view of what that entails, and uh, and a stereotypical view of what um, 
what kind of characteristics that individual has. And, and those perspectives, those discourses of, of what makes a gay man are sort of embedded in, in this historical and, and this power dynamics of, of, of that construction of a gay man. Um, but when we come to understand that there is way more nuance uh, and, and way more um, diversity within even that category, you know, we, we can begin to dismantle um, what being a gay man, this is just an example, looks mm-hmm. like. Um, similarly with, you know, the category of, of a trans woman, um, many of the discourses around um, uh, this specific uh, social category have historical um, precedents that come from the medical field and, and ways of sort of diagnosing and um, uh, ensuring that uh, trans women have lived in, the, in, their, in their gender for uh, a number of, of years or months before they can actually be medically or societally categorized as a, as a woman. Um, so all of those discourses come with these sets of power structures, um, which, you know, if you see it through a queer lens, you would say, well, what makes a woman? <laughs> is it how long she's identified as a woman? Is it if she's medically transitioned? Is it if she passes as a woman? Is it having or not having um, an uterus? Uh, so many of these are framed through the power structures that exist in society. And you know the answers on the other side really depend on your, on your framework. Um, which again, in many cases, can be through the psychiatric field or the medical field or the uh, social understanding, um, and these are very contextual. So I guess through the queer lens is is hopefully understanding this nuance and seeing that these social categories um, have meaning, but in many ways also are contextual and in many ways, meaningless. That's really interesting. And I think really resonates with some of the work that I've been doing around identity mm-hmm. and identity being the idea that most people have multiple identities and yeah. they may or may not intersect and that those identities will change and are quite fluid and will evolve or kind of devolve over time. And it's just we can't the label that you give something or someone will not be the same label in a day a week a month 10 years kind of thing it it, it is very as you say contextual depending on where they are who they're with what they're doing how old they are what country they're in that kind of thing yeah i guess it 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 really depends on you know what society deems as uh, acceptable uh, versus what is deviant mm. in, at the time, and 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 geographical context because we know that you know in in some cultures, in some areas of the world, more things or, or different things will be considered deviant in different contexts in different places. Exactly. Um, so this this kind of 
good versus bad, you know, what is normal and what is abnormal, um, you know, through the queer lens is, is meant to be sort of dismantled. And, and you say, well, let's examine what makes, what is, what are the power dynamics and what are the power um, uh, inequalities that make up this distinct distinction and who, uh, who are the actors um, responsible for making this difference. Um, and in some ways, you know, all humans, um, we look at things in binary ways is, is part of our nature in some ways to look at something and make a decision about whether it's good or bad um, based on our experiences, based on our upbringing, based on our language, based on our histories. Um, and, you know, many of these things we're conscious of uh, and others not so much uh, because they're, they're sort of embedded within our, our um, understanding of the world. Um, and, and sometimes we have, they're so embedded within us that we have a, a kind of a shocking reaction uh, in, some, in some ways even um, uh, of, of disgust uh, when we see it. So for instance, I, I, I grew up very, very, very conservative, uh, very religious uh, in Colombia. That's where I, I was born. And we went to a Protestant church every Sunday. We, we were not Catholic as most of my peers in Colombia. For some reason, we were Protestant. <laughs> and, um, you know, I grew up in a very homophobic church that had very uh, horrible things to say about um, uh, same gender behavior, uh, you know, gay men and and uh, and lesbian women uh, and also about trans people and i i remember watching things i i think it was and you might remember this uh the christina aguilera video you are beautiful um mm. that features you know a diverse group of people who uh, some of them struggling with eating disorders and struggling with body image, and uh, one of the um, one of the kind of clips was of these two men, uh, you know, making out, going at it. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember having a, a a really shocking reaction to it, uh, you know, feeling like it was wrong and that it was. Uh, immoral and that it was disgusting um, but at the same time <laughs> sort of interested in it <laughs> but it, you know looking back you know it it was through my surrounding through my culture through my upbringing my religious upbringing that I had this view of it as being wrong uh, but at the same time there was something within me that said well that's that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I want to learn more. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's just an example of how you know this kind of social context can can make us see things in a black and white way. Um, 
without sort of acknowledging um, deeper desires, you know, that, that might exist within us. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's challenging, isn't it, when you're presented with a kind of a particular context where there is the binary, and particularly a religious context where you've got the binary, God is good and the devil is bad kind mm-hmm. of thing. And you, I don't want to go too political about sort of getting into that discussion. I don't think that's quite where 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 we want, I want the, the podcast to head. But mm-hmm. I want to kind of pull on something you said earlier, which is around um, power structures and thinking about those power structures. And I did an interview, um, and I've done a couple of interviews um, around uh, feminist uh, par- research paradigms. We it mentioned again Judith Butler as well mm-hmm. yeah, um, there seems course. to be some intersectionality there they are you know they are clearly a really influential writer and and um, researcher and in the field of performativity mm-hmm. and just this idea that to look through with either a feminist or, or, or a queer lens at the world is to fundamentally question the power structures in place yes yes that's that's definitely one of the kind of tenets of the theory is to again kind of destabilize this this power structures these binaries that exist you know whether it's the gender binary or um i think judith butler called it the heterosexual matrix which is this idea that you know, you're either gay, you're either straight. And, you know, there's really no fluidity uh, within that. And what we find, you know, through talking to people and, um, you know, in my research with non-binary people is that, you know, their sexualities were were fluid. Their, their ways of uh, understanding desires, um, you know, were fluid, whether they at the time identified as asexual or as polyamorous or as um, pansexual or as bisexual Um, and that this language was also evolving so you know the understanding that bisexuality doesn't entail being attracted to men and women Uh, instead that the bi stands for um, their own gender and other genders Um, and, and other genders as well, you know, obviously they're non-binary, so they are already outside of the gender binary or within it or uh, non-existent. So there are different ways in which they um, understood their, their gender uh, experience. Um, but yeah, going back to power, um, the way I try to use queer theory or queer um, um, the queer lens is to really understand how this power, um, uh, how power is shaped, um, how it's is regulated, um, and how it is uh, uh, experienced by individuals. Whether it's in the form of oppression, because oppression is kind of a a, a form of power. Um, or in some cases, uh, emancipation from from these power structures. So that kind of liberating uh, power of finding out that there are more possibilities uh, out there, uh, outside of, let's say, the gender binary or the kind of straight gay binary or uh, what have you. 
Um, so, you know, how do they come to understand uh, their, their gendered or sexual experience um, and really about how they come to um, navigate this, you know, the, the social, um, the social world. And um, also this, you know, challenging this, this hierarchies. So, um, you know, when we have good and bad, uh, there's also an idea that um, uh, the, the standard, let's say, quote unquote, uh, will be better than the non-standard. So if, if you're um, uh, a non-binary person, um, you know, within us, we, we, might, as a, uh, we might have a hierarchy of sexuality and gender that we, um, we come to assume in society, uh, even as queer people, because of this oppression that exists uh, and and the ways in which you know, let's say, the media portrays genders and sexualities, where it is only until recently that we are seeing more queer people on TV. Um, so you know, with that in mind, we might inherently think that our genders or sexualities, uh, you know, might be less than. Uh, those that are considered standard. I think that's a really good good point around the kind of the representation and that it isn't as good as what is being represented on television, which is, you know, traditionally white, cis, heteronormative men predominantly um, and women. And actually having that representation is really, really important. And I loved what you said there about the idea that language is always evolving and that's that's a really important part of um the approach and 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 thinking about how the breaking down of that hierarchy that the the more words and the more concepts we have to help people understand and dissect who they are and and who they want to be um with the understanding that it's fluid and that it evolves and it might change over time helps people really express themselves and helps us as researchers ex- better express um, who our participants are. Yeah, I, I will say that, you know, it's, it's not always easy um, because, you know, in, in research, I'm thinking, particularly in the field of psychology and, and its history of kind of classifying and, and, and using the, this binary perspectives to, to draw differences, right? To make, to put it into a nice C-test or an ANOVA and, and, and make sense of the world. If you um, make uh, or start taking into account all the categories that exist and all the different um, uh, understandings of gender and sexuality. It does complicate research, uh, but I think we need to adapt to, <laughs> to it. Um, I'm thinking, you know, in surveys and in, in um, questionnaires and uh, uh, if, if we are studying gender and sexuality, you know, we do need to take into account 
all of these multiple ways of, of understanding. So it, it is a good thing that we are seeing, uh, uh, I think, that we are seeing uh, this kind of um, explosion of, of, of identity categories as people are coming to uh, better understand their sense of self um and you know with that i think you're right in in acknowledging that it it does have fluidity it does change and um through a queer lens you know it it there is room for um for that for that change and 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 fluidity so while they're useful we can you, you know we can say they're useful now um but let's continue to revisit them um because it's it, it might change and the context might, must change. Uh, I'm thinking recently there's been some discussions, for instance, to um, to not use the word homosexuality um, because it has a a number of um, kind of medicalized connotations uh, and in its origins um, you know in its way of pathologizing um, uh, gay men and 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 lesbian women um, so in recent years there's been some proposals to kind of stop using the word homosexual uh, altogether because it it has those connotations so you will see people using gay uh, and lesbian um, more than those concepts. Uh, we think also the word transsexual, that is not a word that is uh, used that much <laughs> anymore, uh, because it also, for, for many people, does have those kind of medicalized and, and let's say, pathological connotations. Um, so from, from that, we've gone to you know, transgender and then trans, uh, which have different social connotations, you know, that, for instance, not all trans people want to medically transition, and that's okay. Um, so it, it is also about acknowledging those histories and, and also moving forward. Um, and it might be that, you know, in fact, that is the case, you know, for um, for trans uh, people, they might not want to have the trans uh, prefix before uh, woman or man. They're just a woman or a man. Um, and so, you know, the because they have lived as men and women for decades, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's just part of their history, but it doesn't sort of define them uh, in any way. I think that's that's a really important point and I think that's a really great point to end on as well Sebastian that you know it's evolving mm -hmm. the the research paradigm is evolving the social context is evolving the language is evolving and part of just being part of using a, a queer research approach or being part of the queer research movement or the queer movement more generally is acknowledging that evolution and mm -hmm. riding and running with it rather than trying to fight against it. Definitely. Yes. I think that is a very nice summary of all the <laughs> gibberish. Sebastian, <laughs> 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 definitely not gibberish. I found this a really interesting conversation. It's been really useful for me 
to understand a bit more about your research approach, but also understand about kind of queer research more generally and, and context for um, the LGBTQIA plus community. I think it's just been a, a fantastic conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me again.